0: I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch... We love to watch the true story of a one-hit Oneeder. Eight. Hi. Hi. How well known is this movie, Aaron? I think very well known. I, feel, I, I was I was so don't convinced, you think so? I was so convinced that everyone had seen this because I feel like I watched this all the fucking time growing up, and uh, uh, just on TV. I don't know if it was on I don't know if it was on Comedy Central or TBS or whatever, but just like on regular old basic cable. Um, and all of a sudden like i'm asking friends and they're like what movie i'm like "The one tom hanks is like the you know the record guy the record manager guy and maybe maybe the problem is i was describing it poorly (laughs) Uh, i start singing the song like a jackass but you know that thing you do and they'd be like i mean you're singing. hold on hold on that
1: version of it sounds like when the dad sings it after they appear on the fake out sullivan show (laughs) (laughs) i'm doing i'm laughing loving that thing you do
0: <laughs> <laughs> he's he's he was the first remix artist
1: yeah. uh, so who uh, are we? i think i well well so where we love to watch a movie podcasts pick a theme we do movies over the course of that month around that theme and if we remember we can compare and contrast and this month we are on our second week of musical may four uh we should think of the months names before we record. Uh, musical May 4... We thought of this uh, name before. Uh,
0: only the good stuff comes in the door. Uh, <laughs> musicals of yore? Uh, m- musical May 4 major label debut? I
1: mean, it should just be like musical... Uh, uh, musicals up more. <laughs> Uh, but we're doing more musicals uh, because we took we took a year off uh, to what I don't even remember what we did last May. But uh, we came back to it because there was a lot we we really in, in the past we've really tried to hunker around specific themes, and I think our general theme for this month, with the exception of the last one, was. musicals that you don't think of as musicals that are musicals like non-musical musicals and so we did stop making sense which is a all musical film uh besides like one one or two moments of spoken words uh but i don't think you you would think of in the same way as like a this is a chorus line or fucking Brigadoon or something uh this and now we're in week two Which answers the question, is it a musical if it's the same song 20 times as opposed to different songs? Um, So, yeah, it's that thing you do, Peter. And I think this movie was pretty big. So, now it came out in 96. I was 13. I lived in Bismarck, North Dakota, so like the biggest the biggest FM radio station was like uh we play all the hits type stuff. But it wasn't playing anything with any sort of edge, right? Like the 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 biggest edge stuff they were playing was like maybe better than Ezra and Collective Soul. But like Did they play
0: any U two with the edge?
1: Uh, they did play, yeah. That was when uh, that was when I decided I didn't like you two because I hate the two songs they used to play around the same time. I know one came out in '97, but it's all the same time. I'm in junior high. Uh, I'm listening. I'm literally taping uh, uh, Y93 so that I can find the songs I like. Uh, so I have you know mixtapes. Um, and yeah, the two songs that they played were both songs that I hated then and I hate now. And that is uh uh mysterious ways which i fucking hate she uh, loses. yeah yeah it, it is i don't like mysterious ways because it has like a cool like guitar noise and riff and all that kind of stuff but it was the era of uh the worst courses of all time and i like the it's all right it's all right all right (laughs) like (laughs) i could have written that you dumbass um and then they had a song that i don't believe was on an album but was like really big on this radio station um i think it was from like a greatest hits or a compilation like a new song they released that got some airplay that was called uh, i think rubber ball or it was like uh um, my love holds me like a rubber ball oh the sweetest thing um, and I didn't I fucking hated that song it's also the same time they were playing Streets of Philadelphia and uh, where I thought I hated Bruce Springsteen for a while because like the two songs that they played all the time on the radio station were um uh, Secret Garden and from Jerry Maguire and <laughs> Streets of Philadelphia and I was like oh I don't like this guy because these songs are terrible the we difference a, is you could do a
0: whole episode on bands you, you thought were terrible just because you hated their single yeah, I or the singles that like came around when you were you were that age. Um I mean, I thought the Kinks were terrible because I heard all like late early like late 90s stuff um from my parents. Um, not 90s stuff, but you know like in the 90s I heard a lot of their late era stuff. Um and, and then I realized I was like, "Hey, wait a minute. They put out some of the best pop albums all <laughs> the time. Why are you listening to this garbage?"
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's definitely – there's a lot of bands like that, right, that were still, like, churning out hits. And then, you know, like, Bruce Springsteen, I heard earlier stuff and, and ended up, you know, fucking loving it. And U2, I just never really came around on U2. But, like, I actually think U2 is a really good example because they would play Mysterious Ways and they would play uh, whatever that is, Red Rubber Ball Sweetest Thing song. Um, And – but they – but I never heard uh, Hold Me, Thrill Me, like, Kiss Me, Kill Me that was probably like too hard
0: edged
1: it, it 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 is on the Batman soundtrack but that was probably but that was like the hit that was uh you know that movie came out in 95 i think so mm. like same era but that was probably a little bit too hard edged for um for y93 but that thing you do which was a huge pop hit was a song that they played all the fucking time and the reason <laughs> yeah. why as so I eventually worked for this radio station. This is one of the two radio stations I worked for. It was all it got. It it got frequent airplay because it had the DJ's uh, secret weapon. So legally, you have to say the call sign of the radio station at the top of the hour, which is why at the top of the hour you usually have a DJ that talks for a little bit. Um, and this this song starts with uh, instrumentation for like twenty seconds, which is the first if you're like a, if you're a DJ and you go. You know, um you you click play on the song you go, Hey, it's Saturday, it's nine PM, you're listening to Y ninety three, Here's the Wonders, you know, and then it goes, you like it was it's the it's kind of the perfect lead in time for a 10-second call sign time check. Uh, so this is a song that got played at the top of the hour a lot. Um, which again a trick I learned uh when, when I worked for this radio station only three
0: scant years later, Peter. So you were the reason you were the reason that uh this uh this song became an actual in a sort of ironic fashion became an actual one hit wonder for a band that uh, didn't really exist well i'm not the reason but uh i didn't work and at the reason is you <laughs>
1: that's a different that's a different song <laughs> also, they mean, were they, they were probably a two hit wonder <laughs> three hit wonder um, they were more of a two mistake <laughs> They were definitely they were. They thought they
0: were going to get to hoob amounts of of hits, but they only got tubes. So this is a movie that I think similar to a lot of uh, childhood movies that I saw a million times, uh, I assumed was a massive financial hit um, in terms of box office. (laughs) Modest, but very modest. Like, I'm curious if if um, I'm curious if this is the reason Tom Hanks. Didn't direct much between this and uh, Larry Crown. Um, <laughs> which, because, I never, which I never saw. Because it had a $26 million budget. Like, it's not it, – this was not a cheapo Tom Hanks doing a $4 million movie. But this was a period where every Tom Hanks thing just, like, hit minus, you know, a few – Yeah. It was largely unflappable in terms of his – Yeah, and, and I think the
1: movie – I mean, the movie probably made way more money from its soundtrack than it did from anything else. And, yeah, you're right. 96 Tom Hanks – was huge. My parents loved this movie. Like, they saw it in theaters. They rented it for us when it first came out. I instantly loved the movie. It just really has a very um, compelling – it just kind of pulls you along. My parents were, like, more – you know, my parents are boomers. So, they recognize the era a lot more. Um, and But I just, like, was very compelled by both the music, which is very good, which was written by the late, great Adam Sleyshanger – um and uh just like you know it had a lot of people who were fucking cool as shit right like this cast in 1996 you know, it's got Ethan Embry, who uh, the year before did Empire Records with Liv Tyler, who's also in this movie. Uh, it's got Tom Everett Scott, who I, I, I didn't know from anything at this time, but like around the same time, he's doing American Werewolf in Paris, which was a movie like, at, you know, as a 14 year old was a horror movie. I watched with friends at like probably some overnight thing. Uh, and then he did Dead Men on Campus, which, again, a huge bomb that me and a bunch of friends were obsessed with. And it's got uh, 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 Steve Zahn, who I – there was probably a time that I thought he was one of the funniest comic actors of all time. Like, just because uh, – you know, so it, it has a lot of those those people that are, like, cool for my generation to be in the movie. That, you know, they, that they have an air of coolness around them. And then, obviously, for my parents – uh, it's it's reflecting on nostalgia for the kind of boomers, and then it's it's a PG movie with so it's it's something that I'm surprised wasn't actually a fucking massive success as opposed to a bigger radio success than than a uh, and, and probably album seller than a, than a movie success.
0: And, and it's interesting about the cast is like a couple, uh, uh, I would say three or four of them, not including Tom Hanks, obviously, have all gone on to varying degrees of success. I'd say Liv Tyler is probably the biggest actor out of all of them. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's right. Like She's the operating at si- that point where she's like she's she's successful. She's had a lot of big roles, so she's probably like pretty financially solvent. And then she gets to pop into stuff like The Leftovers and then get the cred for it and then move on. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, the only one here that just was, like, this was basically his high point, like, success-wise, is um, the lead singer Jimmy, played by uh, Jonathan Sheck, who, like, before this was in fucking Greg Akari's The Doom Generation. (laughs) Um, He was kind of the otter choice, but he was the one that I had, like, you know, no no connection with, but that's fine, because the movie kind of paints him as the... I don't want to say the there's there's not really villains in this movie, but like you know uh,
0: he's definitely like typecast as the he's as close as this. I, I remember seeing it I remember seeing this movie a bunch as a kid and and thinking this guy's an asshole. And then the moment that his face popped on screen, which keep in mind I haven't seen this movie in ten or fifteen years. Um, the moment his face popped on screen, I was like, oh yeah, that guy he fucks everything up. <laughs> yeah and but i
1: one thing I like about it, which I want to get into is that like this is a movie very much um which which is rare for movies about bands. It is uh f- directly and very specifically always from the perspective of Tom Everett Scott's character, the drummer who didn't write the songs he's just a talented drummer, and he came in and so like you know Jimmy's a villain but he's also the person that's like writing all this music that's making them successful and not to like really jump ahead I do find it interesting that like something I missed as a kid is cuz you watch it and you're seeing it from like Tom Everett Scott's perception and you're like this is the this is the band leader he's the drummer he's the band leader but like he's not he's just going along with the fun and and Jimmy like I I think one of the fun things about the kind of recap cards at the end you know, Jimmy does he's convinced that he's an artist and he's convinced that he has songs that are that are worth writing and like his coda at the end is that he forms a new band with the name he always wanted the Herdsman,
0: and uh and has three gold albums with them and, like and, and this is something that they This is something that they could have, the movie, I'm not, I I think one of the big issues or one of the big things I want to solve tonight is this movie pulls almost every punch, almost every gut punch gets pulled. Um, Is that a good thing for the movie? Or is that a bad thing? And if it's in somewhere in the middle, which, gut, which punches they pulled are good and which are bad. And one of them that they totally pull is that in any other biopic. Maybe I'm just conditioned by Scorsese movies. Um, any other biopic. Um, and by biopic, I mean biopic on a fictional band. Um, they would cut to Jimmy. They would give you a, a cut to Jimmy. And Jimmy is... Um, working in a grocery store or something that is seen as like you know he he, he flamed out his his music dreams did not go anywhere yeah. um and cuz cuz it's almost like the whole point is that he has he has destroyed the
1: band he's destroyed Liv Taylor's like life up to that point you know um you know and so like he should all for this, like his art and his music, and you would assume you're right. Like comeuppance, like he was, he was a shitty entertainer who wrote one song, and through the magic of you know Tom Everett Scott, his song came to life. Um, but that's not what the movie's about. The movie's about no, this is the talent. This is you know fucking Tom Hanks' character is like no, well Mr. White, he's like well he's the talent. Like there's there's a recognition that um, you know that that he is the creative force. But uh but but and and you know the the funny thing that I really never noticed as a kid is that like uh the the band that he ends up being very successful with afterwards is like he releases those records on Play Yeah, right? like,
0: yeah, that's a good that's a good joke that like Tom Hanks is 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 uh as Mr. White is He's not hurt over this. He's just like, business is business. Like, you know, you can fuck around in the studio for a little bit, uh, Tom Everett, Scott. But, you know, you're out of the hotel today. Like, business is business. We, I work with people that make me money. And if uh, the herdsmen are making money... Uh, I'll work with that asshole again, Um, even though he's a prima donna. And like the, the and it, like, I it's I know I, I already said it, but like, I want to come back to the point that like this movie kind of is leading you to the ble- for a gut punch, especially because Jimmy was so mean to live Tyler, even from like a score, a music biopic perspective that the guy stormed off and he couldn't work with, you know, the business side of Hollywood. It doesn't matter that he's talented. He's still flamed out. Like it's a, it's a separate type of tragedy. Or if this is like a nineties rom-com kind of thing, uh, he flames out because he was mean to Liv Tyler. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, and that's why – but, you know, it, it's weird that basically all the characters for the most part like have OK endings, which, which actually when you look at bands, you know, I remember the, the – I don't want to say Führer, but like the shock like 10 years ago. When everyone discovered the bassist from Nirvana was, like, a re- real estate guy or worked at a computer company or something in, like, Seattle. And I was like, how can the fucking guy <laughs> that was in Nirvana just, like, be a guy at a job? And, like, you realize, like, that's what happened to tons of people in bands. Un- you know, minorly successful, other successful. Like, there's only... Even bands that are successful are usually only successful for like a a sliver of time, and so you know the 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 extremely talented people like the Dave Grohl's go on and keep making music with other bands, and the people who are like I played a good bass guitar, but I don't you know I'm not a creative force go on to you know whatever his name Kurt whatever uh, go on to sell real estate. And yes, I'm sorry I didn't look this up right before this, so I I am I think forgetting it's kind the-
0: of. I think it's kind of appropriate that you can't remember yeah um but uh and that's not an insult to him like people are allowed to go on and live a new life even if that i remember it. reading it was a trump supporter so i'm kind of fine with it oh okay then but. fuck him um but um and another piece of that puzzle is that like uh <laughs> I, i'm not a big fan of the gus van zandt unofficial biopic of um La- last days of um oh uh, yeah i didn't, i didn't see that one uh, it's, it's, it's not like, it's, it's not a, a very successful experiment, but like one they thing call that it absolutely Kurt's... nails. Hold on.
1: What? Kurt is obviously not the guy's name. <laughs> I just want to say, I said it, Kurt or whatever. Kurt is uh, famously
0: not <laughs> the lead singer's name of Nirvana. Um, but the two names that it is not is Kurt and Courtney. <laughs> I, just, uh, I
1: recognize like it is christ It starts with, uh, Novolsek. Um, but I recognize what a, uh, sometimes our brains are just saying things on this show, but I recognize not going back and correcting that. I wasn't sure if the bass player's name might be Kurt. I don't know. Nirvana Some guy named like Kurt bit, or something. <laughs> yeah. I, I recognize that's a little, uh, little, uh, uh, ridiculous.
0: Yeah. Um, the, oh, the, the one thing that the movie nails and is that, um, that the rest of the guys, is that while Kurt and Courtney were kind of like spiraling downward um and Kurt Courtney was trying to yank Kurt out of this hole is that like there the rest of the guys were kind of like hey we have like a we have like a job to do can we can we like go do music and like one of the things yeah. Kurt said in a suicide note was like I can't like music makes me feel nothing anymore right and like these guys were just yeah. like hey like we have like a job, like it's paying our bills. Like I have, like so I think a couple of them either had like wives, or you know, or yeah, had, had lives that they had to do with. <laughs> and they were they weren't like all doing heroin all day long. You know, Dave Grohl is obviously not like. And then all of a sudden they popped up. Like there are guys that like that just there's like the wolf man in this movie who's the bassist who's just like. He's just a working-ass musician. He's just like, this is just a job. And then there's the prima donnas or the talent uh, in the band who um, have other issues going on, both personal. Um, and I'm not yeah. saying Kurt Cobain's issues could be summarized with him being a prima donna. He had horrible health issues, both mental and physical, um, to deal with, and he couldn't deal with them, um, which is very sad. Um, I have to say that so no one hates me. Um, but uh, the point here is that Jimmy imploding the band and then becoming famous is like... Is like uh, it does make sense because like assholes do survive in the business world. It's just assholes don't usually burn their first bridge that they built. Yeah. (laughs) That like, sorry, successful assholes don't do that. Um, Usually like they, they uh, wait a little bit longer to build a few more bridges and then they start burning bridges. And eventually they have to hope that they have enough bridges left over um, that they can cross uh, once they've burnt down enough of them.
1: And look, I this may be like the fucking commie leftist in me, but there is also a part of me watching this movie that recognizes like at the end of this movie, you are on the label side and not Jimmy's side. Like when I was a kid and you watched this movie and you know uh and and Mr. White's like, if you want me to I, Record that thing you do in Spanish I'm going to tell you to do that And like uh, you know and other characters Are like talking about how the label has their best interests at heart and Jimmy meets uh, like an artist Who's clearly been fucked around by the label uh, Diane Dane Uh, Kind of a, like, kind of a, she's a little bit like in her 40s and is still going on these like um, fair tours, but clearly, uh, clearly has like a lot of uh, general frustration with the way her music's been treated, probably understandably for a variety of reasons if we're getting into music in the 60s. And she kind of befriends Jimmy, and Jimmy is like, this is what they told me. The label would fuck you over. They're not your friend. They don't care about art. They're only here to make money. And, like, all that stuff is true. And the type of stuff that, like, not to go back to Nirvana, like, bands like Nirvana and a bunch of other bands that I consider amazing and seminal uh, believe. But this movie very much kind of gets you on the side of Jimmy's a... a prima donna asshole, and like part of that is like, again the live Tyler portion. Um and then I, I will just say like I don't think this is intentional. I like Tom Hanks is a rich guy. He's probably our best rich guy that you could possibly have. I also find it somewhat amusing from in a in a historical irony perspective that like Tom Hanks made a movie that ultimately paints the talent as uh not understanding how business works and kind of an asshole while the studio like yes they're 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 making business decisions but isn't that getting these songs out into the public in a way um that he goes on and founds a real playtone label that releases this soundtrack and then releases other albums like he becomes a, a label. He becomes as, a Mr. white he becomes a, well no he he becomes who's the guy who yells about a shrimp mr pink or whatever the oh fuck yeah is.
0: yeah yeah
1: um I, and then makes a movie it's just like like again i honestly don't think there's anything insidious about it but i think you could probably make the case that like oh tom hanks founded a record label and he he started his label with a soundtrack to a movie about how the record label is the good guy <laughs>
0: I and I think it's even more sticky than that. Is that like Tom Tom Hanks is like it's a rough business, but as someone who survived in it like sometimes you have to you have to um pay, you have to pay the piper. And it's funny that Jimmy spots the fact that he, he, Jimmy immediately spots the fact that uh, White is, like, not going to give him what he needs. Like, he's, Jimmy's immediately asking yeah. about, when, when, when do I get to... We get to cut a full-length album. Like, when do I get to do more... Oh, I'd like to re-record the song on the B-side. Um, and, like, he's like, no, it's fine. It was fine the way he is. Because he... like And Mr. White is just doing that. Because he's like, it's literally not worth the studio time. Because everyone is just listening for the A-side. Um, yeah. And then uh, later... All the prospects that they're asking them to do is um, record a Spanish version of That Thing You Do, um, which is a, just an obvious cash grab, right? And yeah. then um, d- uh, record a covers album. Which was also a famous way of just cashing in on people's stardom um, that were kind of probably on their way out. Yeah, and well, like, you look at the first few Beatles albums, right? Like they're half covers,
1: half original compositions.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of weird similarities to the the Beatles. Like, the well, they're not weird. It's not. It's not weird. It's <laughs> very specific. Yeah, but it's just it's 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 uh, it's, it's funny that uh, Tom Hanks decided to uh, include these like very specific references to like the biggest band in the world, um, and then. It's, it, this this story still feels very surprising at every turn. But um, heading back to that, the covers album, um, like Jimmy can see that like he, White is just setting him up to go on yeah. the the road and uh, to go on, you know, like, you know, you're going to become a one hit wonder and then we're going to milk you out until people stop showing up to or they st- stop hiring you for these um, state fair turns. And like so it's it's a funny movie because like at the end of it, no one is the bad guy. Really, yeah. It's, it's just that you're left with a little bit of, um, you're left with a little bit of uh, um, disappointment at at this, you know, what could have been situation. Yeah. And it the the truth is, it's no one's fault. Like Tom Hanks is not particularly hurt about Jimmy. He tries once. No, he's, like, like he says no voice. one's going
1: to go to jail because you're in breach of contract.
0: Yeah, he tries once. He says like. Yeah. He says, "Like if I tell you to do the Spanish cover of that thing, you do. You'll do it." And then Jimmy uh, immediately fucks with him and walks out of the recording studio. And Tom Hanks isn't like fuck that fucking guy. He's just like, "Where's yeah. your band, man?" Like this is tail yeah, tail is old as time. Like, like the one hit wonders, and, and it totally makes sense why like um Steve Zahn, on lenny um would you know kind of fuck off um and, and like go do his shit instead of focusing on the one reason he's on the west coast and it totally makes sense why jimmy would freak out over the quality of his music but like what it leaves us is with like the fun loving um quote unquote smart one guy yeah yeah the smart guy um <laughs> in in our our lead character in guy patterson in tom everett scott and like that's uh i i it's it's stickier than making a good guy or a bad guy but it is like at the end of the movie like guy, guy patterson was just like i just wanted to make a living making music i didn't particularly care about didn't particularly care about like making sure the yeah. label didn't fuck me over like some a lot of the, the movie is just like in yeah it's, it's essentially like a, a movie about like musicians
1: yeah i mean exactly like right most of the most of the For all the bands that we know, like, the more common result, the good result from, like, being in a band in stardom is not, like, you know their names and you have their poster on their wall and they toured for 20 or 30 years. Like, Guys is a lot of times the ultimate, like, measure of success for a musician, right? Like, his success is that he becomes a session musician for a little while and then teaches music theory. (laughs) Like... That's, you know, he played in a couple bands, <laughs> one had a hit. Like, I'm sure if you went to colleges across this country and talked to the people, you know, they, they would have similar stories. And, like, that is the, like, you know, it's, it's a brush with fame. It is like the old Andy Kaufman at 15 minutes as opposed to, like, now what we define 15 minutes of fame as is, like, you made a racist Twitter thing and everyone knows your name for
0: a few weeks and you lose your job. You to be the villain of Twitter for the day?
1: Yeah, exactly. Like this was it. Like he had a song. He was on tour for a few months. Um, you know, it, it for for guy it ends well. He meets his wife. He leaves Erie uh, and uh, Pennsylvania and decides to stay in Hollywood. That that clearly like you know ends up getting married. <laughs> ends up so, you know founding a music school in this case. Like it's it's a good ending. Um, I do think though, there's two things I want to say. One actually interesting as it relates to how this movie came to be and one just something that made me laugh as I was watching it. Do you think that Tom Hanks has a case against uh, Damien Chazelle and La La Land for the Ryan Gosling character in that movie? <laughs> like a copyright, like, oh, interesting, a white guy in Hollywood who like all he wants to do is love jazz so much? <laughs>
0: it is it, it is something that like the the pure innocence and the fact that he isn't trying to own the space is like why it's cute and also tom everett scott is very like cute and innocent yeah, but like there's a, something about ryan Gosling where it's like i love ryan Gosling, but there's something a little sinister he's about, sinister yeah sinister's the perfect yeah perfect. Something a little dark about how much he's like talking up jazz you're like you just want to make money off this fucking thing don't you
1: yeah, where, and well, also in, in La La Land, like, fucking, the whole point is that he does suck and he's appropriating, because even John Legend is like, are you lecturing me about the purity of jazz? <laughs> like, when he wants to make a jazz fusion album and shit like that, whereas, like, this guy just likes, he's made his heroes, he's a drummer. Like,
0: uh, yeah, let's talk about Tom Everett Scott, because, like, I yeah. This is I a, love Tom. I like I
1: legitimately like Tom Everett Scott is a guy who I would just like to give a big old hug and like a little flop of his hair.
0: He seems That's like a it. very sweet guy. Like he was very good in that sitcom from a few years I'm, ago. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, Great. You know, did you, sorry. Did you did you say what it was? Yeah. No. I'm I'm sorry. Uh, did you forget Me, it? You
1: can just look Aaron Armstrong. I'm sorry. You you can you can just look it up if you don't remember. You don't have to apologize. Oh, no. I I I I remember, but I am
0: Wait, that's not the name of it. <laughs> but but I'm sorry. Did you did you break wind? I'm very far away. I don't care. Are you Peter. apologizing to someone else? Peter. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not your fault. Anyway, he was in a show called Oh. I'm sorry I'm sorry <laughs> uh, and uh, he's very cute in that like very charming and like it, it, he has all these mannerisms in this movie that could have been douchey and the jazz thing is central to it like him just a, a waxing on and on about how much he loves jazz or like him talking to that one guy that's like the presenter on their farm tour oh yeah um, and, like, t- singing his song back to him. And it's somehow very cute. Oh, I and,
1: love that moment where they meet the Mr. Downtown guy. Where he's like, you did this! Mrs. Like, it's it's so, like, it's, it's without ego, right? Like, ultimately, he plays music because he's a music fan. And, like, that's it. Like, he just... And that's why he's such a good point of view character in this movie. Like, this is a movie about... um like, it, if it was a Jimmy point-of-view movie, it's a it's a PG-13. It's a drama. It's not as much fun. Like, Tom Everett Scott is literally just someone who loves music, loves performing, and, lo- and goes along with this ride. And so, as a result, you have a fun, upbeat movie because he's your point-of-view character. And I – until watching it this time, like, with a critical eye because we have to do this podcast about it, I didn't realize, like, how – like, if this, if this movie was a book, it would be 100% written in the first-person perspective. Like, I thought there was moments of other characters without Guy, and there is not. Guy is in, with the exception of, like, the scene where they first hear the song on the radio or when fucking Giovanni Ribisi injures his elbow, Guy is in every moment of this movie. Or like the part where Charlie Theron's character like quickly sees the
0: dentist, um, but all those could have been just like how he imagined that happening.
1: Like, yeah, it really, it really is. Which is also why like there's a part of me that feels like the relationship,
0: um, the relationship with Liv Tyler gets a little bit short shrift. Like it felt. I agree. The, they spend why? Why is Charlie Theron in this movie? It establishes absolutely nothing. It's just fun to see Charlie Theron when she's that young.
1: Yeah, pre like big, big famous. I, I, uh, I didn't realize it was her. I remember seeing her in
0: like two days in the valley. It Doesn't quite look like her because it was before she got fucking cut. Like well, yeah, before well, she was like, I'm gonna she's before she's yeah. like, I'm gonna be able to slam two of you down on the ground at a moment's notice. <laughs> um, yeah, I.
1: But I also think there's a little bit like so that I did notice that because I remember actually feeling like the the kiss between like when those two get together, like it it felt like. Um, Like, I don't remember tears streaming down my face, but I remember feeling like, you know, positive butterflies in my tummy over it. And then, you know, so at first I'm like, man, they really don't have much for her to do. But then I was like, they don't have much for anyone. Like, this, this that actually feels appropriate because, you know, you have Guy who's seeing this, like, fun ride and not noticing because he's not really – he's not really paying attention all that much that, like – not not only is Jimmy kind of being an asshole, but not like yeah, that's just how Jimmy is, but also like he's being shitty to to Liv Tyler, and their relationship is on the cusp of a break. Like he's he, th- that part where Liv Tyler gives that speech is surprising. That like you know uh, to to guy in the moment, and uh, you know he even's like, hey, Faye's gonna make a speech, the big Faye, go ahead, Faye, like. Not realizing that this is a breakup speech that's about to happen. So I think it feels like maybe the chemistry feels a little light, like it's not a love story throughout. But actually, as I thought more and more about it, I thought, well... Actually, realizing how much of the movie is just, like, you are in Guy's frame of mind for all of it, it actually works surprisingly well.
0: I, I'll, yeah, I'll keep coming back to this as we talk about it, but, like, this movie is so low friction. Like, there's no early yeah. yearning for Liv Tyler where he sees no. her kiss him. He sees her kiss Jimmy, and he's like, oh, immediately wish. He immediately see, he sees her, and then he, like, smiles at her kind of sweetly, and then he goes and flirts with a girl at a bar. Like, he, he there's no... And it's not, like, out of a... a well, and
1: Liv, T- Liv Tyler, like, too. Like, it's very much, like... And I love the, like, the picture moment, too, where, like, both of them kind of realize, like, oh, well, if this train's over, we've been having fun hanging out. And that will end. And, oh, shit. Do I, like... They're Neither of them are, like, pining for each other until yeah. they realize, like, oh, well, this is over and we might not see each other again. And I, I think that's a fair, like... It has a nice, like, button that they stayed together, but I do think that's a fair, like, thing. You can look at someone as just, like, the great Faye. She's so much fun to hang around with. I like them. And then it's like, oh, wait, there's literally – do I not want to be apart from this person? Like, I think that's fair.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I and I and I think uh, I I I think it's not unbelievable. I just wish they yeah. laid a little bit more groundwork. Um, but yeah, we'll 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 get to we'll, that. We'll get, we'll get into that. So the, we are well into this. This is just like such an easy. It's, it's, it's easy and breezy. It's an easy breezy, it's an easy drinking kind of movie. It just goes goes. goes it's into, got a lot of pep. That's my yeah. that's my Mr. White. I it's need like, something with I feel pep. Like I'm drinking a Coca-Cola and a Coca-Cola commercial. Uh I think yeah, just for the they taste. They seem to like it in that commercial.
1: Um I was about to make a that's uh that's perfect because it's like Ray Charles, but that was Diet Coke, so I I realized that that probably doesn't work. I don't you probably like that's one of those things that also Did feels like you say like... Ray Charles died
0: at Coke? Like the yeah, factory he died. Or No, the
1: Ray Ray perfect? Charles sang like a very famous like
0: Diet Coke theme song. Do you sing it before or after he died at the Coke factory? Um uh, during <laughs> 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 he expressed surprise
1: at its collapse. <laughs> Maybe it was seven up. This one of those weird like commercials that is now Am I having a what oh, Was he
0: saying was he was he saying uh, make seven up yours.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was that's him. Ray Charles soda com- I'm I'm putting soda commercial cuz I legitimately Diet Pepsi 1991. Jesus. <laughs> Okay, yeah, let's take out all this, because it's Diet Pepsi, and it makes no goddamn sense.
0: Um, oh, he so the other were- Pepsi. Was Diet he Pepsi. singing a song, or was he just cutting a deal? No, he no, he sings a whole song. And then, yeah, later he died in the
1: Diet Coke fact. <laughs> <Weird>. <laughs> oh, he died at
0: Coke. Got it.
1: Now you, now you have to wonder, is that funny enough to leave in the whole bit? <laughs> I don't know if it is. <laughs> um, so... The the other thing we worth noting is, like, so Tom Hanks wrote and directed this, and not only did he write and direct this, um, he wrote some of the songs. So worth noting, all the songs in this movie are original, even the stuff that kind of seems like, um, oh, well, that, they probably just used that to set the stage, like, the opening song, that's like, I'm just loving you lots and lots, that just sounds like any of those, like, 1950s, like, one-hit-wonder songs. That song, uh, specifically was written completely by Tom Hanks, um... Uh, they have a bunch of other people for the soundtrack. Adam Slushinger wrote that thing you do, but uh, there's every song in this movie is original to the movie with the 65. That includes even stuff that like feels very much at home, like Mr. Downtown. Uh, all all written for this movie. Hanks wrote a few of them uh, himself. And you ask, well, it's like 96 is where Hanks really is, like the biggest movie star in the world, right? We actually. Covered Sleepless in Seattle which is basically his 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 1993 is insane like he does Sleepless in Seattle and he does Philadelphia 94 he does Forrest Gump terrible terrible movie but the number 1 grossing movie of you know uh of that year 95 he does Apollo 13 like you know this is he's just doing like some of the biggest movies at a time like before the the comic book or the big budget action uh movies um and then yeah 96 he does this and he he literally he told this story and i don't know how much if it's facetious or what but he his his when people were asking like how did you end up convincing a studio to just you know 20th century fox to say sure you can write and direct a movie and his story about it is that he walked into the studio, um, and he said, uh, "Hold on, he has a quote about it, which I think is very funny. So I kind of want to actually uh, get it." Uh-uh. Um, sorry, I accidentally closed it. Um, and now I'm panicking and probably scrolling past it. Uh okay, here we go. He said he said he walked into the studio and said, I'm a big honking star and you have to let me do what I want to do. And he said that the studio replied, you're absolutely right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But like this is clearly coming from a place of uh, passion. And Tom Hanks also said that part of the reason he wanted to do it. So, like, even though I think, again, the the metatextual stuff about like Tom Hanks starting a label, he wrote it because he was not on Mr. White's side. He was becoming so famous and so big that he was struggling with that a little bit. And he felt like he wanted to produce good work and he wanted to do art. And working inside the studio system was a lot of you should play this, here's your co star. He was having trouble getting stuff made. And so, like, this this kind of comes from that place. Like, And you get it. Like, we talked about how affable Guy is. Like, Tom Hanks is a guy, right? Like, he is an affable, fun guy who is supportive of people around him. And he's in a business that doesn't always support that. Um, and much like Guy, we find out at the end of this movie everything works out for him. For the most part, give or take a chat haste uh you know everything has has pretty much worked out for tom hanks too um and it's just by being in general uh, you know seemingly just being a genuinely good affable down-to-earth for a rich uh movie star uh uh person so it it like, it makes a lot of sense that you make this movie. It probably makes sense that he didn't rush out to make another movie because it just seemed like, you know, everything from writing and directing to writing the music, that he just had a really sense of, like, what kind of movie he wanted to make. Um, and I think that's why it works so well. Like, I never saw Larry Crown, but Larry Crown very much felt like, I should get back out there and write something. And this... You know, at a time where he didn't need to, and this is one of those times where where it's it feels like an artist getting something off their chest, and it's Tom Hanks, so it's a very watchable, fun, you know, movie about a band becoming a big, um, a big, uh, a big hit for a, for a fraction of a second in the '60s. It's not like it's not like he got off like fucking permanent midnight off his chest or something, but it still feels like, the work of a very cohesive artist.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of a shame that this is the, um, this is his, like, crowning achievement as a director he did a tales from the crypt episode that's okay it's like not extremely funny and not extremely scary it's just kind of one of those middle you know it's like uh just over the plate kind of tales from the crypt episode um and then he did um he did larry crown which is a non-movie um it does not exist and like I wish we had gotten more of these like low friction kind of comedies, comedies with a with a sense of heart, a sense of place. Um, Not, you know, completely ineffectual like Larry Crown. Uh, Neither of us have seen Larry Crown, but I still feel pretty safe saying that. I actually don't know if I've seen Larry Crown. That's how non movie it is. That's fair. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, it, it, it's a schrodinger's movie it both exists and doesn't exist in that i know people that have claimed to have seen larry crown and i may be one of those people but i can't say with any sort of confidence uh, i guess
1: he also wrote the screenplay for this greyhound movie that came out last year on apple
0: tv he wrote the screenplay for greyhound yeah okay
1: do people like that one i'm looking
0: i think it's just a over the plate kind of boring historical movie
1: david Elric gave it a c minus which um feels like not the type of movie that david Elric would be annoying on yeah yeah
0: yeah i i i was gonna say is i all i know about it is it's um it's 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 an extension of tom hanks's obsession with history but it's not a particularly good one uh it's not a band of brothers or the pacific
1: yeah, he really, like, I think around Hologram
0: for the King, he's like, what if I'm in bad movies sometimes? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was da- I think it was Da Vinci Code. I think it was, like... Yeah, Da Vinci Code was definitely... I guess I'm looking at, gates. like... He was like, oh, I, oh, people still like me no matter what I do. I didn't know
1: that there... So I'm looking at, like, his filmography, and I'm like, Itkatha? What the fuck is that? I guess it's directed
0: by Meg Brian,
1: he's in it from 2015. They're
0: like, we need something that's not as hard to say as Synecdoche. <laughs> or maybe extremely loud or incredibly close. So in 2011... That fits he- in the Forrest Gump kind of like obsession with history and wanting to be a, a little bit of a piece of history kind of guy thing.
1: You, like you, Yeah, I you kind of see where it fell apart because... In 2009, he does Angels and Demons, which Da Vinci Code is a big hit. Does anyone like Angels and Demons? He does Toy Story 3 great. I think does most
0: some... people forget that they made a movie sequel. People know they made book sequels. Yeah. They made all of them. I think they did Inferno. They did Inferno, like Inferno too. The only thing I know about Inferno is that it ends with, like, an actual apocalypse happening. Like, he fails to <laughs> stop it. That sounds good. I, don't... I, I, maybe, I thought I good watch it sounded good, too. And then I talked to people that saw the movie, and they are like, yeah watch literally any other apocalyptic thriller. (laughs) I mean, there was a point where people were like his worst
1: movie was The Terminal, which is still an okay Steven Spielberg movie. But like you look at, yeah, 2009, 2011, he's doing fucking Angels and Demons, something called The Great Buck Howard, um, which might be a documentary. He's doing Larry Crown, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Extremely Crown Uh, and Incredibly Larry? (laughs) Extremely... (laughs) extremely and yeah
0: then he does crown atlas <laughs> which is good <laughs> yeah, great. Um, he's really good in cloud atlas I feel oh yeah like cloud atlas is great i'm like, really sad that cloud atlas uh tanked because that was like a bunch of people really like feeling yeah, it cloud
1: like- atlas it's fantastic. It
0: was a bunch of people really feeling it, going for good vibes, and then a bunch of people got slapped on the wrist. And, like, that stopped uh, Starship Wachowski from making uh, those kind of movies for a while. Um, and that stopped Tom Hanks from uh, really expanding out his repertoire again. He plays, like, five characters, four of them evil.
1: Yeah, and then he's in Captain Phillips, which is, uh, I hear good, but I never saw it. It's thought. so good. It's so it's, good. I need, it's, to, it's I need worth, to see
0: it's, it's worth it. Uh, the it's it's worth the ticket. <laughs>
1: uh, uh, then he's in Saving Mr. Banks which is also is this not of a movie like Larry Crown in Saving Mr. Banks I think in 20 years you're going to like see posters for those and assume it's a Mandela effect thing where I are those the same movie but Saving Mr. Banks as I understand it is about is he plays Walt Disney who's like goes to the person who wrote Mary Poppins and is like let me make a movie and she's like no nah.
0: Yeah, he he got very. I think he's very. How is that a movie?s movie?
1: Where nothing happens? Yeah. Well, the the movie produced by Disney about how Disney got the right to make a Mary Poppins movie. Like,
0: I actually can't think of anybody less capable of making a good Walt Disney movie than Disney. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm sure there's that story is way
1: more interesting than whatever PG like the story of how one company.
0: I would rather have Golan and Globus tell that story.
1: Yeah uh help to usurp someone's artistic vision of no one making a movie of her book <laughs>
0: through <laughs> spending money on
1: it. Uh, uh then then so then does bridge he does bridge of spies which uh is not a move is like oh it's really um, good i love I'm it i'm not a huge bridge of spies fan
0: i'm, a, I'm a, i, I take, get the ticket across the bridge do you want to talk about that thing you do uh i love that thing that you do where you change the subject yes all the girls in school
1: were never quite as cool as you They were all teasing, talking, you were all teasing let's do With them, I feel like I'm wasting my time When you make me feel like I'm It time is, I'm like, I hate doing one. that thing of, like, if so-and-so is made nowadays But this this movie takes place, like, essentially in, like, 1968, I think? four. Is it
0: 4? Yeah, I think so. Okay.
1: Which is like when this was made, right? It's 32 years removed. Um I love the idea of there being like a movie of like 1988. <laughs> um,
0: mr white would be uh either uh entirely full of energy or uh red-eyed and pissed off at the band and nothing in between
1: just make it about like someone who accidentally stumbles ar- around their keyboard and makes the day bow bow song <laughs>
0: <laughs> yellow or whatever it's called oh yellow what's, yeah what I, it I have that on 45 for some reason um uh, what's it is it called oh yellow or it's yellow? called the ferris bueller song god
1: damn it that's not what it's called
0: my 45 i think says does say from the ferris bueller soundtrack <laughs> uh let's look it up just so we get it right but i love that idea of like
1: he just goes and plays Ferris. Dave well Bow. A couple of things that's really fun about this movie, though, they did all learn to play their own instruments,
0: um, at least to the point of of some some uh, capability, right? A few of them, yeah. Have experience, I think, is what you were going for. No,
1: like Steve Zahn is a is a good example of someone who did not and learned how to play the three songs he was required to play. And so, like when he knew the camera wasn't on his face, he would like just be looking directly at his guitar. <laughs> <laughs> um, he had some good stuff
0: in in the interviews. Uh but yeah, what what's <laughs> the plot Zahn of this movie? It seems like, like in interviews, similar to Tom Hanks, Steve Zahn in interviews seems like he's Steve Zahn.
1: I can I say like I legitimately Steve Zahn has unfortunately been in a lot of bad movies and they never really figured out how to use him. This movie uses him so well. There's so many fucking lines in this movie that he just sends over the moon and like that I I think about all the time like I um Even, like, subtle stuff. Like, there's the obvious stuff about him, like, you know, taking nothing seriously so that when he's, like, getting interviewed on the the fair circuit, he's like, Oh, I'm not with these fellas. Uh, I got a pig entered in the hog competition and we are gonna win that blue ribbon. (laughs) But also just, like, the, when they recruit Guy and, uh... There's a, there's a part where he goes, well, he we kind of played this song like it was Wipeout. And, like, Steve Zahn's like, every song is Wipeout to Chad. <laughs> like, that's a fucking funny line. And Steve Zahn is so good at delivering it. And it sucks that he, like, I think I liked, I, I definitely overrated by probably, like, a good old country mile. Movies like Saving Silverman because Steve Zahn was in them.
0: Saving Silverman was a movie where I was like, I love Steve Zahn. I love Jack Black. I kind of like Arlie ermie at this point. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be we're going to be a- uh, elevating this movie to god status for a little bit. I watched Saving Silverman so many times. Um yeah, he's like in really? the bar and some and another yet another person gets uh uh the wonders wrong. Um because the name of the band is Wonders but with the name the with, with the, with the, the, the number 1 uh misspelled in front of it he, he goes uh you and the O'Neilers you're with the own eaters, right or whatever and he goes O'Neilers <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know so like good. he's so
1: he's so good at that and even just the way he tastes like i, I had a i was in a had lived across the street when i was in uh post college i lived in Wisconsin and my apartment uh was across the street from a bowling alley so me and some friends joined the bowling league there for a season and our, our team name was uh, was the Shrimp Shack Shooters. <laughs> um, and I love the way, like, not only is it very funny about how into it Steve Zahn is when he's on the radio talking about his musical influences, <laughs> he, he, he's like, I was mostly influenced by Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. <laughs> and, and the look that Tom Hanks gives them is like, fuck you, dude. <laughs> like, I know what you're doing. But I like that, like, I like the idea of a character who... Doesn't take any of it seriously, but not in a way that is typically, like, embodied in these movies. Like, the person who's, like, the sarcastic asshole is usually being a dick to everyone, and he is almost just, like, joking about the artifice of everything that's going on. And he has some, like, sincere moments where, like – because he's the one that brought – guy into the band and he has those moments of like can you believe this is us like he is he is recognizing this is likely 15 minutes of fame and he's going to enjoy every moment of it and I think in a more cynical movie not made by one Tom Hanks that character is insufferable and someone who's like is a dick to everyone and puts people down and like it's 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 great the way they're able to give him consistently funny funny shit to say while not relying on, like, mean comedy to do I, it.
0: I think the trick here is that, you're right, it's not mean. I think the trick here is that the Joker is allowed to play the Joker if the Joker is consistently, like, being that silly and is, like, making it very clear that he's not making fun of people or being ironically detached. Yeah. He if, if I mean, though it is, like, you know, a cleaned-up version of 90s Ironic Detachment as a joke, Yeah, it. it, it, I mean, he was in reality because Steve Zahn has such an innocent and goofy kind of childlike presence, like. It feels like a Eddie Haskell or something like it feels like a, just like the, you know, the goofy neighbor that you tolerate because he's always cracking jokes. But he'll actually like make eye contact with the parents and ask them how work <laughs> is and stuff. Right. Like he's that. Yeah. kind of He's playing that kind of role where um, he's not being cruel by by constantly cracking jokes. And, it, and you know, Guy Patterson as well is not being cruel when he's like, um teasing people or like throwing out little quips uh th- both of them are sort of like playing a role like yeah shades is supposed to be lightly a irre- irreverent joker is supposed to be you know the joker lenny um steve zahn uh is supposed to be uh kind of like uh a- Sweetly silly in a way that's non-threatening, right? Yeah. He's not, he's not he's not tearing you down. He's just like like you said, like he's he's lightly lampooning everything around him, but he's still gonna show up for the show most of the time.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well and Ethan Embry is just like the guy in the town that could play bass, right? Like he he doesn't he doesn't necessarily he's, he's sweet, he's nice. But like he is just like, oh, you want me to play bass in your band? Sure, ah, oh, shucks, I guess. Like you know, um, I really like Ethan. I mean, again, I, I've said this. Like I really like Ethan Embry too. Like he, were you a Can't Hardly Wait fan? I
0: don't think I've seen Can't Hardly Wait since like '97, so I can't okay. remember anything about it. Love that movie. He, I mean, he he stops like he plays Mark in
1: Empire Records, which I don't. I, like, Empire Records is not a movie that I have a lot of nostalgia love for, but it was a movie that I loved quite a bit when it came out. Um, my guess is that if you saw, being how old you were, if you saw, like, Empire Records when you were 13, which would have been in 2003, you would have been like, I fucking hate Gen X. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: think, yeah, I, I'm, 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 I think that's... Good spot on i think that'd be uh something where if you included that in some sort of like i don't know 90s flashback month or something i have no idea um it would be one of those ones where you're like oh i loved this movie growing up and then i'd be like yeah uh, about that (laughs) what you you would message me back when is the last time
1: you've seen it but no (laughs) i I was pretty like – it is a movie I never owned on DVD because I recognize it as a fun movie that I never loved all that much. Like I was not an Empire Records. I was a clueless kid. Not be a space, Empire
0: – There could be a space in your heart for that, right?
1: I. Li- but I mean I like – like Empire Records is like just one of those things that like – the type of movie that you watch at your first like, oh, we're all in seventh grade. I don't just have to hang out – With boys, what if we have a bunch of people over someone's house and we watch movies all afternoon?
0: (laughs) You know? Yeah. I uh, was going to say is uh, it also came from the VHS era where I was like, you bought that tape you had
1: a great me. soundtrack too, right? Like, did, yeah,
0: yeah. I, I I've heard yeah. the soundtrack since, and I like I I like the soundtrack quite a bit. But it's it is definitely not a Clueless situation where when we did Clueless on the show, I was like, oh, I thought this was like a cute comedy, but this is actually like a a a great comedic work of the '90s, yeah. right? This is like a a truly phenomenal thing that also happens to have a great soundtrack.
1: Yeah, Ethan Embry, and also like I really do like I still kind of like it. Vegas Vacation. <laughs> where he plays the he plays rusty in that one
0: it's a it's a movie that makes me laugh but it's like it's one of it's one of it's like european vacation it's like see it once when you're a kid see it again when you're in their like late teens early 20s and you are probably said you've scratched that box it's it's yeah i mean i again another movie i I own more of the griswolds but like you know you don't need that much more yeah i i like vegas more
1: than european um I do think it has a lot of, like, funny lines and funny moments. But, um, yeah, I mean, Ethan Embry, and uh, he's, you know, he's still around. He's still – he was in that great – what was that great – like, what was that fucking 2013 movie he was in with, like, the Escalating Dares, the horror movie? Cheap thrills. Cheap
0: thrills. Cheap thrills.
1: Uh, And then, yeah, like, I love the way he's kind of converted to kind of the horror – horror stuff he's really uh, and He's good in, in the devil's, devil's candy, candy too which is he, good too yeah. and
0: like while the walking dead is a deeply disappointing thing he was really good in, in, in a short arc in walking dead
1: yeah so i guess we we'll, i can go through the plot pretty quick we've, we've talked about a lot of it but essentially because um, it is super zippy um that uh you know guy works at um his parents 60s electronics store there's a band fronted by uh jimmy Um, and Giovanni Ribisi is their drum player. Uh, that's the Chad who every song is wiped out to Chad. They're going to play a talent show. He breaks his arm. Uh, uh, Lenny knows guy from his uncle's band. I think, um, guys a little older than them. He was, uh, in the military at some point, probably served in Vietnam, I guess. No, 64.
0: It would have been, it would have been the beginning of Vietnam. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, he
1: he did a tour. He came back. He's working at his dad's electronic store. He loves the drums. He loves... I thought you were talking
0: about... Yeah, but they're there's... Spo- oh, yeah, you're right. Are you what sure this Vietnam? takes place in... Oh, he would have been stationed when he was like 18. All these guys are like 20 to 22, right? Oh, it is 1964. Yeah. So maybe he didn't actually see war, but he, he served he for, maybe did like Germany. a National Guard thing. Yeah. Remember and, you uh, talking about like, I was in, you were in Hamburg that's and right. I was in Munich or whatever the other way around. So he's
1: a little older. He had been in a band and I, clearly there's something about like his dad being like, it's time for you to like earn a career and give that music dream. Uh, but he decides to join it. He learns the song, which is a ballad called That Thing You Do, which is the first of many times you will hear That Thing You Do. Um... I'm actually going to pause there. The most impressive part of this movie is that not only I, – I joked earlier that this is a musical where the, the song is just played over and over. They do have other songs. I actually like uh, a few of the songs in this movie that they do. The real genius, and I guess like Adam Schlesinger of Fountains and Wayne and uh, wrote all the songs for – a lot of the songs of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and who unfortunately died in 2020 of COVID, one of the – kind of first like celebrity deaths that like really I think was like oh shit like that's someone I know and I loved in various incarnations uh, he wrote that thing you do I think the real amazing thing about this movie because the movie does not work if that thing you do is a not a catchy good song and b not a song that evokes 60s pop music, right? Like, it can't sound like a 90s song. It has to sound like a 60s song, which it does very well. And also, it needs to be instantly earwarming. Like, if you're an audience member and you start hear- seeing everyone get excited about the song, which they do in the second incarnation when Guy plays it at the talent show and he starts speeding up the tempo and then and to realizing that oh this this shouldn't be a slow ballad this should be a fast like poppy beatles type song if that song doesn't click with you immediately and then you have to enjoy that at all these other high points throughout the movie because the song the movie's about the song becoming a big song, uh the movie wouldn't work. And the fact that that, that song A is instantly Uh, Instantly catchy, instantly evokes the 60s and allows you to hear it probably six to ten times throughout the movie without getting sick of it. Um, I think is just like amazing. They
0: also do a cute trick where they um, I think the last performance when they're on the fake Ed, Ed Sullivan show, they play a verse that you haven't heard in the rest of the movie.
1: Yeah, they do a really good job of figuring out how we keep each one interesting right like sometimes they turn into a montage sometimes they cut it off early like it's very smartly created so you're not hearing just like the same thing like he never just shows them on the stage doing it three times like there's always there's always another reason to perform it and they do it in a different way and they have more visual stuff like the you're right the the Ed Sullivan show type performance at the end You're also looking at the cutting and people watching them on TV, and you're recognizing that this is the big moment for this song that you've heard. Uh, So, I mean, that's, again, speaks to Adam Schlesinger, like the idea of like, hey, this movie only works if you're able to write a song so fucking good, it actually becomes a top 20 radio hit. Can you do that? (laughs) It's like, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, actually, I think the story is more they auditioned like a bunch of people and and they, uh, Tom Hanks and... Uh, and other people like Jonathan Demi who produced this when they heard the song, they're like, oh yeah, no, that's, that's the song. (laughs) Like, of all the, you know, hundred, hundred people that came to us with a cassette deck and played their fucking song. Probably one of them was guided by voices.
0: When the song plays for the seventh time in the movie, you're not like, "Oh Jesus Christ!" Like, it's actually maybe a failure of the movie that the song is that catchy. <laughs> like, yeah, well, it did over. It ultimately overshadowed the movie, but it's also a movie
1: that I've seen 50 times. Right? Like, you kind of alluded to it. This is a cable yes, movie that a became a movie that, times. yeah. Yeah, that I've I've watched it. It was a movie that when I was still like watching regular TV, if I caught it, I would either watch it or if I decided I didn't want to sit through whatever commercials it was playing on, I would go get my DVD copy and put it on and start at the beginning. Like it has that quality of just eminently watchable.
0: That that core thing I'm talking about is here too, right? Like there's there's yeah. sort of a frictionless quality which makes it perfect for TV. But it yeah. does make me wonder if the movie is too light. Like it's a little episodic. It feels right? like the movie is setting up a big gut punch, and then it doesn't do it. Like, the fact that the biggest one... All right, you so, think it's setting up a gut punch? I don't think it's setting up a gut punch. Oh, yeah, because everything just kind of falls apart in, in, in a way towards the end that... It happens... It feels very sudden, yes. It, yeah, it does feel sudden. It feels very sudden, yes, but, like everything going their way for so long in a music biopic we're trained to know that this is going to fall apart this is how literally all of these movies work this is how this is how gangster movies works this is how every fame story works this is how vh1 behind the music works (laughs) like you you you're like oh man everything's just going so great for villi vanilli Oh no! <laughs> what are they doing with tapes? Um, so, like, when that moment actually happens, I'm not going to blame it on the rain. I'm going to blame it directly
1: on Millie Vanilli.
0: <laughs> when the moment happens when you're in the record studio and no one's there, and except for Jimmy and Guy, and um, you know, they're but the even Wolf that Man. they cut out right. Like they they literally they they
1: cut to the last moment of that fight, right? Because he's already Jimmy's already arguing. And Mr. White's finally, like, giving them the, like, here's your papers or you're walking or whatever. speech.
0: So, sh- yeah, because he's like, you're right, Jimmy. You're right. You're right. Like, he's doing the thing where he's just like, I'm not I'm not arguing with you. Everyone's literally- already sad when they cut into that moment. I, it is light. It I've is been here before. Which- We've ar- arguing with you does nothing. Maybe I would have argued with you when I was your age and trying to manage, a, you know, an act like this. But I'm not. And you're not that age. I'm not that age anymore.
1: Yeah, so really quickly they, they the talent show they're a huge hit. They immediately get signed to like a, a local guy who like produces like garage bands or the equivalent in nineteen sixty-four of garage bands. Um get gets them to cut a single in in a church. Chris Isaac is the guy who does it. It's one take, no b-side. They get a couple gigs at like restaurants. Uh, they start selling their single, um, and eventually, like, you know, they start to become, like, this band that people have heard of, and they go see them play, and they're filling up this, I guess, this Italian restaurant, which has now become a weird club, which I guess is probably on point for the 60s when the rise of bands, they didn't have the venues for all of them because they weren't really prepared for um, for kind of the, the amount of bands that would start flooding flooding every like you know every suburb and town and everything else
0: i mean it's an Uh, old school thing right like the idea you go out to dinner like an italian or a nice restaurant and then all of a sudden like you are um you get like a a show in a movie like they started cutting that that out as an amenity at some point probably when you know it was just not financially viable or you know americans just wanted faster dinners um (laughs) and uh capitalism baby <laughs> but like there like i have a i have a friend who's a musician like goes on tour and stuff and he does and he sings at a like an upscale fish-Italian restaurant. Like he'll sing like the like classics and romantic songs like for yeah. a group. And like, so some places still do this kind of throwback no, yeah. stuff. But Ma- like, this I, be- I've been on dates at nice restaurants. I know that people still sing sometimes. But like, I feel like it's rare though, right? Like I feel it's like I've maybe been in like two restaurants uh, that ever that have had like a band playing and it was a, a band not uh, doing uh, mariachi music.
1: There's actually a restaurant up here that I really like that's kind of close to where we live that um it's called crooners and it um it uh has like it's a it's a huge like area and it has like two parts to the restaurant so and it has like really nice uh Italian food where like depending on what you want to do that night, you can either go sit in the part of the restaurant where there's not gonna be people like crooning and playing piano and stuff the whole time, like if you're like Hey this is the first date and maybe I should get to know them and then we can move into the other room for the dessert and stuff like that. It's 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 nice. Um
0: yeah. It's a nice but classic like it, model. It definitely – I mean, I it's it's, it's, cool.
1: evo- it's very much evoking the 60s type.
0: The uh, Copacabana history. kind of vision, yeah. right? Going, I'm yeah. talking about Scorsese again, but um. – <laughs> Yeah. So
1: anyways, uh, yeah. So they – one thing I really like about this movie, in case we didn't get back to it, is that as they – every level of fame they get to or every level of like on the fame ladder they hit, everyone um, – is shitty about the previous like step on that ladder. Like, um like when so eventually this this local promoter's like, we're gonna hey this 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 Playtone Records, this guy, Mr. White, wants to put out your stuff. You you sign with him, you've taken me as far as you can, and as they're convincing them, they're like, You're gonna go on tour. A state far, you know, a state fair tour with all of the, the hit makers of the Playtone label. And then that's the next section. They meet other people. Like, you know, they start changing a little bit. Their single is racing up the Billboard charts and stuff like that. And eventually get to the point where they're too big for that tour. And then, they, you know, Mr. White's immediately like, well, you want to keep going to the fair? They're playing North Dakota next week. Like, this thing that was the big carrot of, like, are you serious? Like... This is the biggest thing in the world now becomes like the the dumbest thing for like uh, washed up has-beens. And now we go to L.A. and we're going to do this movie set. You're going to meet the head of Playtone Records because you have the fastest single rising up the chart. And you're going to do radio interviews. And as we mentioned, Jimmy is like, when do I get to go record more music? That's, that's why I'm in this band. I'm the artist. I want to make art. I made a song that was a hit, but, like, I've been now singing that song across the country for five months. I'm ready to write, to, to, to put down some of my, my new songs. And as they're in L.A., a lot of things happen. One, um, well, I forget Ethan Embry's character's name.
0: Uh, it's, it's actually a joke. Uh, it's TB player. He's purposely unnamed and it's, um, Ah. it's a joke that most bass players go unrecognized, which, you know, Adam Schlesinger, I'm sure would find very funny. Um, it's TB player is the bass player.
1: That makes sense. So he had, uh, they find out that he signed up with the military at some point. Again, the guy that like, um, and while they're in LA, he meets some people, uh who are in the military and then they go to Disneyland to hang out, which is especially funny because it is crazy that they like there's a picture of him with his uh other like marines or Army Corps people or whatever posing with like at Disneyland with Donald Duck and goofy, and it's like like this isn't fucking escape from tomorrow, right like they got the rights to shoot at disney which in 1996 was probably a little bit of that tom hanks magic and now it's uh this movie was made by 20th century fox also known as a division of disney <laughs> <laughs> just, I, th- I think that's funny like it was probably big they got this 20th century fox movie got to go shoot scenes at disneyland and it's in your movie and you now it's like, there oh, had
0: to be just fucking hurdles to jump through though to get that done right like we want to see the script we want to see all the footage. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And now now um, all these characters exist in the Disney universe. So it all it all makes sense.
0: Um, <laughs> but there's uh, it, it is funny, though, that like there's Ethan Embry and Giovanni Ribisi here in this movie. And because of that, I confuse the both of them uh, all the time. Um, yeah. And uh, that is uh, the both of those are points that you think are going to be more points of friction. Right. Like. Oh, well, we don't have a bassist anymore. Is the band going to break up? And then Tom Hanks just supplies them Wolfman. Yeah, you knew and this Wolfman was going to happen. No... Here's Yeah, here's a session musician. And Wolfman is not a sign of things to come. Wolfman no. is not does not mean that Tom Hanks is going to replace two or three of them. Wolfman is just there to make sure the band still exists. Like, it's just putting a new tire on the car. Um, exactly, and you think Giovanni RBC is going to be pissed that like he lost his one shot, and he's sad about it for like five minutes at the beginning when they're playing the one local show he wanted to play, and then he just like kind of rejoices He just joins the family, and, well, and he's, he he takes
1: Guy's job at the at the appliance store
0: and Guy's job as the as P- Mister Patterson's <laughs> son. Uh, yeah because um, he's yeah, like it's, celebrating it's, with them. He's, he's he's excited for them, and it's like it's, yeah. The movie it's continually sweet. has this sort of sweet sense of like people decide to 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 listen to their better angels, pretty much until the last twenty minutes. <laughs> well, even
1: then, like, so it should be noted, like, Liv Tyler is on this tour and does go to L.A. and she's their costume designer. Um, and they, you know, and Mr. White has a lot of things about how, how do we make them look? They always wear suits, color coordinated guy always has shades. That's going to be your nickname. Um, I really do love the one moment where they have to fly into LA and they, they, they do the fucking hard days night thing where they have to get in a car and stuff like that. Because you've just been so locked in on them doing the fair. Like, they, you, you haven't had any exposure to them around fans. But, yeah, they're a bunch of cute boys <laughs> who have the number, you know, uh, the number Seven? 11 biggest <laughs> single in the country. Like, of course, if they try to just leave they're, after a concert, they're going to be mobbed. But I like how there's, that's, like, the only point of that, right? Like, there's no other point in the movie where that happens. And it's, again, from that really drilled-in perspective of Guy. Like, he didn't have a chance to meet his fans, right? But they are huge. And you f- you almost forget how big they are in the moment because you're just so zoomed into uh, the day-to-day stuff or the things that they need to do. Um, so they go to L.A. Yeah, they start movies. They do radio interviews. Um, Steve Zahn ends up, He you know, he, his thing of, like, I'm going to be famous. I'm going to meet pretty girls. He meets a pretty girl. They decide they're going to go to Vegas. He disappears at some point from the band uh, because he got so caught up in – he gets married to this girl. He never comes back. I mean, that's – he didn't take it all that seriously to begin with and he wanted to, you know, to meet a pretty lady and he did. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, so – but Jimmy is like – Still convinced as hard he he basically we cut into that scene I mentioned where he's like he's had enough of all the the marketing and all the other stuff and he you know and uh, Mr White's like look I, we own you we own your band we own everything you've written write whatever you want you're gonna do what I tell you to do and he goes well in that case I quit. Uh, you know, meanwhile, Guy has like, he just kind of loves, you can tell he's like a little bit lonely for friendship, right? Because he just is, he wants to just kind of enjoy the fact that he's in LA and he's a band and he's getting a record contract and he's in a movie and he gets to go on the radio and stuff like that. And you have Ethan Embry's character, who's just like, he tries to hang out with, and then he gets distracted by those military guys and those push-ups. Steve Zahn's kinda of, just kind of a lunatic, just trying to like meet girls. So he ends up at a club with Rita Wilson and... And uh, a bunch of, like, uh, 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 fake jazz legends, like the kind Tim Heidecker uh, rattled off in I Think You Should Leave. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all these people were on the Colgate Comedy Hour um, at some point. Uh, but, yeah, he meets well, one of the guys that worked on this
0: movie helped work on Walk Hard, by the way, just while we're there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean
1: it, it, Mookie Six. <laughs> um uh, d, d, uh what is it? Uh Paul Buffano, Paul Buffano. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he meets Del Paxton, Del Paxton. Um, Del Paxton who uh yeah, he like he talks is this supposed to be like he's, Thelonious Monk or something who's Yeah, he's just Starstruck and um yeah the later on when they break up he walks del Paxson's in the studio cutting down some tracks and plays with them and he gets to like that's his dream moment and meanwhile you know jimmy's broken up with Faye. Faye has that moment of like hey you notice how i've been around this whole movie and doing nothing but supporting you and you have done nothing but not care when i'm sick and have the flu and you know she has this speech that i think a lot of people like remember of like um uh, I'm, you know, basically saying, like, she's angry with all those wasted kisses, all that effort being in a one-side relationship. And I I really do like that moment as Guy plays it where he just is like, oh, shit, all those times that I gave her a blanket, like, that you see in the periphery of this movie, too. All those times I gave her a blanket because uh, Jimmy didn't care that she had the flu and I had to help her with this and that. Uh, oh, like... Like, he kind of is connecting the dots of, like, this person that he has, you know, nothing but respect for and fun hanging out with has been treated like garbage by this asshole. And um, so, you know, the band's broken up, and he's like, I guess I think I'm going to stay here because Del Paxton said I had the chops to make it as a drummer. I'll be a session musician. I'll be a wolf And um, he runs into Faye, and Faye's kind of talking about, like, you know, being in a kind of being in a relationship with a narcissist who's like, I realized that like I've never really been kissed well because the the person who was kissing me was more concerned with himself than than me or our relationship. And so he's like, How about you get a good kiss? And he kisses her, and then they keep kissing, and then it starts showing the title cards of where everyone ended up. Um we mentioned Which they all end up okay. Basically, like, Steve Zahn runs a casino, Uh, Ethan Embry, I forget what happens to his character, nothing bad. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, it's, you're you're right, like, the conflict is is minor. It, It just tells the story of a band who has overnight success, but, like, it's not a band built on a consistent musical direction or artistic vision. It's, like, assembled out of parts. And they hit it big in the dumb luck of the music business and can't sustain the the journey. But yeah, it's not fucking Sid and Nancy. They just oh, you got a cool song that everyone liked.
0: Back to your lives. Yeah, yeah. Um and like I, I, I like the I like the sweetness of this just being like a fun a fun long ride and the fact that Tom Everett's got he's oh. taking it hard more just like that the ride had to be over so senseless that he wouldn't get to see Del Paxton again. Yeah, right? the, the the ride just is over for no particular reason. It's the ride isn't over because like, um, there 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 wasn't good closure, and also he showed up. He's the only guy that showed up that day. <laughs> no. Yeah, he always shows up.
1: That's his thing,
0: right? Yeah, so, yeah.
1: I always knew you were the smart one.
0: Yeah, and like, uh, there's the, speaking of like the thing that I'm 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 t- I'm hinting at, right? Like that, like. So before he left, he was dating Charlize Theron. She leaves him for a dentist. That's not in the final cut of the movie, basically, at all. Liv Tyler's like, weren't you dating that girl, Tina, or whatever? He's like, yeah. Yeah,
1: because Mr. Mr. White's like, does does guy have a girl back home? He's like, yeah, he's dating someone. I I, I actually think it is in the final cut. I know there's a director's cut that isn't that adds 40 minutes of, like, oh, makes it a little less snappy. I, I think people are generally like, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> but we, we don't need fucking the almost famous bootleg cut of fucking that thing you do. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but almost an almost famous has a lot more friction and a lot more sadness, right? Like Well exa- exactly. That's why An Almost Famous is about like an actual tragedy that like this didn't all come together the way it was supposed to. This was like what could have been and you feel like at the end they're doing the the um what could've been thing twice in a row with him and Liv Tyler, right? Like if you ever come to Erie, come see me. And like that would have been a sweet moment to end the movie on, is like, oh what could have been? Like they didn't even see each other. Um, and I would have liked that ending just as much, I think, if they didn't get together.
1: <laughs> I agree. I mean, if you're watching this movie for the idea of, like, the live, in, live Tyler, Tom Everett, Scott Romantic comedy, like, it does feel a little bit like an afterthought, right? I think you, you can do all of it beyond that. And I, I agree. If it's like, look me up in Erie sometime. Um, it's, I, I guess, like, it doesn't hurt the movie doesn't ruin it does feel like it comes out of nowhere but I don't I wouldn't have liked the other version either if they were like secretly like Tom Everett Scott I don't think his character would have worked if he was like secretly pining for you know Faye the whole time and I like that her like if we if we saw the movie from Faye's perspective I think we would have realized what a miserable relationship she was in for longer as opposed to just on the periphery, but that's again you just are making a different, sadder, more serious movie.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I I don't think that the director's cut is particularly successful. <laughs> but um, did you watch it? I watched the I watched the second half. Of it with the director's cut. I couldn't muster to put like a two and a half hour director's cut through. Um, so oh, you interesting. Know, um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's got like 40 more minutes of, of all this, but like it all kind of, yeah, it, it does take a hundred minute movie into it. I, I, it, it all kind of lands in the same place. It's just that there's more, there's more of the, the pieces that feel like loose ends and like those loose ends probably should have been removed so they didn't look like loose ends. Like Charlize Theron basically shouldn't be in this movie. <laughs> I, but I like the idea, like, you know, that, you know, he, uh, he I so I
1: don't know how to make this not sound shitty, but I do think there's a, like a small town thing of just like, we're two attractive people. Maybe we should date. Right. And ultimately they don't have anything in common. Like, um, the reason why I'm careful how to say it, like, I don't want to make it sound like he has a passion and loves music and Charlie there and legitimately doesn't care about music at all. Like, um, that's okay. But like, it, it, it's, it's recognizing that I think, um, I don't know. Some people shouldn't be together.
0: <laughs> Maybe that's not, it's not that trenchant of a point. I but like um, even showing her at the dentist's office t- with the, the, um, with the dentist, um, is like, I either want to see that come to fruition because it's like a funny little hint of a scene or I don't want to see that scene at all because it's, uh it, it, it's like when they, when they dispose of it, it feels like it's going somewhere, but Guy doesn't seem particularly hurt by this. He's just like, yeah, I guess I'm not dating her anymore. Yeah.
1: I, I mean, I, I don't think they're, 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 again, it seemed like a relationship of like, we're attractive. We should go out sometime. Um, I, I, If I was just saying from, like, a story structure, I think it's so that you don't get a whiff of, like, Liv Tyler and Tom Everett Scott earlier in the movie. Like, they have their relationship. There's there's not any idea of, like, let's get this single guy in our band, you know? Um, maybe that's it just to make it seem more... That, 'cause i I agree it does it does not the movie does not work as well if you get the impression that Liv Tyler or Tom Everett Scott are pining for the other one, so I'm glad they didn't do that, so maybe it's a little bit of that, yeah, although I will say in general, if your friend gets out of a three year relationship and ends realizing that like I've been manipulated by a somewhat like emotionally abusive narcissist. The next day, it's a bad idea to hit on
0: them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, That is one reason. Like, they're in a vulnerable. Like, yeah. And that's one reason why I would have been happy with the ending where, you know, it's just two things that could have been. Two beautiful things that could have been. Like, they they didn't realize they were right for each other the whole time. And then also, the band. Were they right for each other? They were just both nice. Like, which I guess can be right for just two nice people. I mean that's uh, fine, uh, uh, but <laughs> I, yeah, I don't. Even, I don't actually know if um, if Guy Patterson would have been a better boyfriend back in um, back in Erie if he was dating Liv Tyler. Like I don't, I don't know if one day like Jimmy was like I don't want to date this person anymore. Do you want to date her? Like I don't. it feels like he made time for Liv Tyler once everything collapsed. It does have so there's that scene
1: where like they you know they look at the pictures uh Liv Tyler's looking at some pictures she took on the trip and she notices that like guy is participating in the pictures that she was and Jimmy's not and she cuts Jimmy out and realizes oh we had some fun times I guess in the longer cut what may make that part work is if they showed a fun time they had together <laughs> I don't know like I guess they show it in montages the montages here are good
0: yeah, right? the Montages are, like the, the m- Montages are great yeah. because also like the um <laughs> there's snappy pop music to to be had. There's also there's a few there's a there's a few okay. uh, other songs they write to to get into the mix, but they never Dance really focus on me. them or talk about Dance them. I uh, I really love um I, th- I don't think it's called Dance With Me. I danced, yeah, the, 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 I wrote down Dance With Me tonight. Which does feel like we had a big single and then you're like, let's have another one. Uh, they want to hear something snappy. What do, what do people do when they want to do something snappy and fun? Well, they dance. I like, I
1: like that song quite a bit. I had the soundtrack. That was my other like, favorite song on it. I also like they do the Beatles thing because Steve Zahn sings that one.
0: Oh yes, yes, yes. Hold on, I'm trying to. Like look so, up the there. idea of the t- the two lead singers. Yeah, I'm trying to look up what else is in what, Come what are on, the other songs. dance with me tonight. Hold on.
1: Um, I, that also has the scene that I remember so much from. Oh, the, it's called it's uh, called Dance
0: with Me Tonight. Yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, the song that I remember so much from the trailer is because there's a there's a part, and I really there's a moment in that song that I really like because um. It's the only time that you can see uh, Mr. White seemingly enjoying the music that he's, you know, built a life around promoting. (laughs) Like, there's that part where, like, right before the beat drops back in, he, like, throws his arm out ecstatically. Um, And I think it's a little bit of, like, a little bit of a conductor, but he's just, he's walking on the sidelines, arm crossed. And for a moment, he's like... You know, can't contain himself knowing what's happening. Uh, and that also, that shot was used in every fucking trailer of the movie, too, of Tom Hanks doing that kind of, like, arm jab to indicate, like, uh, the, the beat coming in.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, Tom Hanks just being a good guy, throwing throwing a roll to his old buddy, Peter Scolari. I, I have that in my notes, too.
1: I like Brian Cranston's in this movie as a, a Apollo astronaut, which I or Gemini. Mercury. Gemini. Gemini? Gemini, because doesn't he mispronounce it? Oh, we call it Gemini. That's right. <laughs> uh, and yeah, Peter Scolari is the host of the fake Ed Sullivan show, uh, which is, again, something that uh, we talked about this a lot in our Ticks episode, where we talked about uh, uh, Tom Hanks' 1993 year. Peter Scolari started Ticks in that same year. So, you know, kind of a different vibe. But I like that they clearly remain friends to some extent, and also Steve Zahn
0: shows up, and you've got mail. I mean, that must have been Tom Hanks a little bit, right? Yeah, I mean, at that point, there he was just so well established, right? Like, and and, and it's kind of cool just that. Um, he brought in Andrew Schlesinger in the movie. He was a bassist. And then there's the moment where the Wolfman comes in and kind of shows off on the basis. Like, there's this weird moment where, like, there's all this stuff where Tom Hanks feels like he's, like, recognizing the underdogs. And, like, I don't think he thinks of Peter Scalari as an underdog. But, like, um, there's, there, there's, there's moments in this where it feels like Tom Hanks is, like, recognizing the people that don't often get recognition. Uh, yeah. And, like uh that's 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 just really i don't know it's just really cool to me to have um like <laughs> these strange little talk show hosts that are just part they're just hubs along like the music machine factory uh Miami sound machine um <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the music machine factory, uh, and like they, uh, it feels like Tom Hanks like likes throwing roles to old friends. Like there's a sweetness to the fact that like Tom Hanks doesn't forget about the the little guys in these stories.
1: Clint Howard's in it.
0: That's nice. <laughs> Clint Howard <laughs> is in it as like a radio DJ,
1: right? Uh he is. Yeah, yeah, man, Dell Paxton. And all he does is just repeat the thing from. Whatever the guy just said and agrees with them, which I I think is a specific joke.
0: I think because before the age of like proper talk radio, where they like bring on personalities, you're basically just filling filling gaps between song blocks, right? Like a little bit, yeah. Well, they kind
1: of they make fun of that too. Like the two radio parts that are like pumped with these big things. One is uh 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 fuck fuck fuck. The director of Ghostbusters Probably. 2016. Who?
0: Paul, Paul Feig, yeah. Yeah, that's Paul Feig is Paul in there, and they have this whole setup where Paul Feig's talking for like a full minute, and then they get the guys on, and they're just like, all right, great, thanks. And then he's just like, you can leave the headphones. Say hello, fellas. And they're like, hello.
1: Well, here's their song. that's climbing off the charts. <laughs> and uh, like, and then, then the other one is, the yeah. Tape? <laughs> Um Yeah, then there's the other one, the in-depth interview. That uh, is just basically like Clint Howard repeating back everything they said and agreeing.
0: <laughs> it's so good. I, I really. Do
1: you, can I, we talk about how good Del Paxson's album name is that he that uh, the guy loves so much? Oh, what is it called? Time to Blow. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, this is a joke that sailed by me as a child watching this movie.
0: <laughs> but a great name for a jazz album. Uh yeah, it's a great name for a jazz album and it's got uh I was gonna say it's it uh, I I feel like the music in this is generally really good across the board and I really good like the, the jazz yeah. scenes because I really like the jazz scenes because like they're focused on what attracts guy to it and he's like yeah, yeah he loves like the whole vibe of it but he's just like he loves the fact that like playing drums is liberating for him. Like they keep coming back to that, like him playing drums in the basement of his, of his, uh, his dad's store where it was like a moment of liberation for him. Who's working like 80, 80, 80 hours a week for his dad. Right. Um, like he's, he's working day and night for the family business and his dad still calls to fucking harangue him about leaving the lights on or whatever. Uh, (laughs) um, and yeah like like, yeah that all that like it feels so liberating to me and i i i have to say the del paxton thing like particularly del showing up at the end it has a little whiff of magic negro stuff like just a whiff of it like this idea that this magical black hero of yours is going to come in and solve all your problems you're really good kid (laughs) wow shit dude did you study under del paxton just to do um, impressions of him?
1: Uh, well, that was very... I very specifically took out any modicum of impression for obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, just the line that he says. But yeah, that idea of like, hey, I was practicing the studio and like, <laughs> I I was looking for that new sound. Well, listen to this. a white guy
0: from pennsylvania (laughs) exactly it has a it has a whiff of that sort of like uh that condescension that 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 that, uh that uh, black people are there to share their wisdom with you white persons that you can succeed but it's actually it but what it actually reads to me as is tom hanks trying to recognize the fact that like all of these guys were heavily indebted to black musicians like yeah. They're all indebted to jazz musicians like Thelonious Monk and Miles Davis. And they're all indebted to early rock musicians like Chuck Berry, yeah. right? Like they're all they're all kind of indebted to to black musicians and Sun House, like these old guitar go- these all like old guitar gods um before that was even a thing because white people needed to make it a, needed to market into a thing. Um and like uh but pre Hendrix too, right? Um yeah. so it's uh I, I I see it ultimately as coming out in the wash, right? But it's uh it, it was a moment that at first I was like <sighs> <sighs> Well that's I mean that that is where
1: like uh things get complicated with any movie like this, right? Like this movie takes place in fucking 1964, right? At a time when like All the things we know now about the way that, like, black artists invented, you know, jazz and rock and roll and everything. And then uh, basically white executives and white uh, rich people, like, made them almost into indentured servants, paying them less. And then as rock and roll got popular, like, literally marketing the Elvis Presleys and the, you know, the white people that were... Uh, you know, the nicest term, influenced by black musicians or covering black musician songs, like those are the ones that they were turning into huge stars, right? And like taking like these these other artists and and turning them into touring shows and almost like uh hit factories and stuff like that. So like you watch a movie like this that's very much about the idea of a record label and in the nineteen sixties, and you go. Can you watch a PG-rated fun romp about this era and this specific subject matter? And or does it get too much of feeling like a apologia or papering over a lot of the stuff? And I I do think this movie, by like zeroing in on guy's perception and a small young band and eerie and just kind of dangling all these other things around the periphery is able to do it in a way that again doesn't always escape feeling a little bit like again uh defending the label magical negroism that kind of stuff but like gets out pretty clean i think in a way that i think you turn the dial to the left or the right you include less or more of one thing and it becomes a little bit like okay like this is this is boomerism nostalgia nonsense
0: yeah yeah it it could definitely be a a boomerian uh condescension right like it, it could, yeah like it, field
1: that. of dreams is something we just talked about a couple months ago a really great example of something that uh, a movie i love and have emotionally affected by but its use of James Earl Jones to to talk about baseball pre you know pre sixties and fifties you know I think we all agreed feels super gross and I think there's a version of this movie that would feel that way I'm I'm actually impressed with the way the movie by being so drilled down into the perception of a of a drummer and. It, it it kind of avoids all that by not trying to make a grander statement at any point throughout the movie you know it is just about a guy who was a drummer for a local band that's that almost made it super big
0: yeah yeah and and ultimately it ends with Del Paxton like not not really much comes out of them jamming together which i think makes it a little bit less um silly yeah except for del paxton being like i think you have the stuff to be a session musician um there's this great documentary i recommend if you're really interested in this era called the wrecking crew it's about this group yeah. of session musicians that have you seen this one Aaron? No, I haven't. Um, about these I, I'm familiar with I played guy. with Brian Wilson yeah. and fucking uh, uh, just every big album, <laughs> The Birds, like every big like 60s pop band, like uh, brought them in to like, our guitarists can't figure out how to nail this part. <laughs> and they would yeah. play like the crazy, super technical guitar part for them. Like, um, and these guys like are on. On these, like, the most famous albums of all time, and they were just session musicians. They were guys like Wolfman in this band, like the the bassist, who's just like, what I do is I show up, join these bands, I join recording sessions, I make sure it sounds good. Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks's checks never bounce, and then I move on yeah and and and
1: candidly that's like i am not musical at all i have written a couple songs with my brother one of my brothers who's very musical and who like writes whole albums and knows how to play a bunch of different instruments and i've like helped with lyrics and stuff like that on some songs that he's written um but like i i i tried to learn piano i tried to learn guitar there's a part of me that like whatever whatever part of that brain that understands like musical theory or how to write music or whatever else, it's just not something my brain clicks with in any capacity. So, I do understand the idea of if I had more drive becoming extremely proficient at playing music, I think even then there's a part of me that wouldn't understand the leap of, well, how do you start like writing a song like how does that even work and even though i've seen ton more than enough documentaries and read books by bands and stuff like that it, it is like it is like trying to understand like complex you know quantum physics level math where i'm like no i get it like you're adding this and you're adding this and i guess black holes exist but like i i t- you can show your work all you one. It passes right through my head.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have like direct examples of that were like, my brother has been trying to get back into music. Um, he, he had the band or whatever. And it, it, when it was in high school and he wrote music yeah. then, and even he's like, now he's like, Oh no, I'm just trying to get back to like technical proficiency. Like I want to play, yeah. I want to play recognizable stuff and see if I can match it. And like, he bought a, he bought like a drum kit kind of synth thing. So he can have like more sound in the room when he's playing. <laughs> Um, yeah. and, my, and a motorcycle and a convertible, yeah from <laughs> from um, three families <laughs> three blunders um and uh and my my wife is also uh, picked up a piano a little bit during quarantine um and like I've asked both of them she used to like, play piano at horse camp, right uh yeah, I mean, not at the same time that would be very dangerous, but um. I kind of, I picture stronger, a, little Yama- that a little Yamaha, like. <laughs> it would have to be a Casio,
1: I mean. Oh, I mean, it sounded like the the camp was, I mean, she's getting
0: sent to horse camp. They're not poor. Oh, I, I meant purely because of the size on the back of the horse. You can get a small Yamaha. You can get a big Casio. Um.
1: <laughs> I really look, can we write a song that's that? like. <laughs> Like, uh, how much I don't understand music, can we write a song that's called, um, You Can Get a Small Yamaha and a Big Casio?
0: <laughs> yeah. What's the thing you texted me earlier today? Because I said it back to myself like a hundred times. Uh, it feels like a hint of what we're doing this summer, but I said... since Since after Mexico, it's
1: Frankenstein. <laughs> We're just, we're just, oh i guess that i guess that 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 alludes to nothing because it's such so nonsensical
0: i don't know why i said it back to myself like a hundred times like <laughs> and i said it like in all the iterations is like since after mexico it's frankenstein since after mexico it's it's frankenstein it's frankenstein since after uh, mexico it's frankenstein
1: speaking of like uh everyone i know that was in a band and i uh like so i was in plays in high school um uh and uh and like a lot of them and uh so i knew a lot like everyone that was like in battle of the bands in in all three high schools in bismarck north dakota i was probably friends with someone in the band um so i was around people that were writing music all the time and everyone i knew that was in bands fucking loved this movie. And they had a very specific fantasy of, um, um, the, uh, the scene where the song comes on the radio, which is a masterful scene, right? Like it's like this cavalcade of them realizing the song is getting played as they run through the town to make everyone change it to the station because they know the song is going to be played on the radio. They just don't know when. And so like, they, they just kind of run through. I, I love that scene. It's probably like the best, like pr- technically directed scene where it has a lot of like energy behind it is almost like a an, uh, an avalanche started by Faye um, as she's mailing letters that just keeps picking up the whole thing till everyone's dancing uh, and everyone I, I knew who like was in a high school band or college band like thought of that scene is like a like a very specific fantasy one who like again cuz I worked at the radio station I was able to make a little bit come true for for a couple of my friends because I was able to play a few of their songs on the radio and stuff like that so um but uh yeah i mean it, like I, that, I I do think that is just in a fucking amazing scene, and like, even as someone who doesn't play music and has never specifically had the fantasy of, like, what if a song I can't write gets played on the radio? Like, you cannot help but be swept up in the excitement of it. And I guess that kind of speaks to the whole movie, right? Like, as someone who doesn't write music, man, this seems exciting.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. all of it seems
1: so exciting.
0: Yeah. And especially, like, they, they, they do it without throwing, like, Erie, ohio under the bus or Erie, Erie, pennsylvania under the bus Eerie like pa it's not a sh- it's not like them being like oh thank god we got out of that shitty town like it, it's just like they, they they were stuck in a in a kind of youthful stasis and i think we can probably bring this to you know final thoughts but like yeah they were stuck in kind well of i mean they don't they don't and, ha- like, and
1: they also don't have time to because they're they're a working band like they never get to celebrate their fame right so you also don't have all the stuff of like Um, they've grown cynical by it, at least from your perspective, or they start throwing lavish parties and like, we just wanted to play rock and roll, uh, music, man, not kill Jimmy with a swordfish. (laughs) Like, you know, they don't have any of those moments. It's all excitement up until the point it's over.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's just a a fun ride that ends so quickly that even, uh, even Guy Patterson doesn't, uh doesn't know that it's over until it's over right um and like you take you take back to like the beginning of all this and there's that amazing tracking shot of Liv Tyler um hearing the song and running down the street and then she grabs uh Giovanni Ribisi and freaks him out and then they run down the street and there's that whole sequence where they're just like Running and jumping and and and, pl- and partying in the in the the, the store, the appliance store, yeah. and then like from that point on, the so movie it's... never stops moving, right? Like that's yeah. it, it, just goes and goes. And then they meet Tom Hanks. Um, another weird point of friction: they have a manager before Tom Hanks, and that manager is extremely supportive of them leaving him as their manager. Yeah, there's though. no there's no friction there. Yeah. He's just like he's happy to have the contract bought out. Um yeah. it's very very which is very weird for this kind of movie you figure taken he would come back later and be I like can. I want a bigger yeah. cut or something right Yeah Um but uh that's not that's that's not the
1: He's movie. a man of very nice trailer. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you figure once they all kind of like are dummies and sign that contract that that'll screw them later but it doesn't. Um <laughs> Uh and, and and the thing about Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks is not a liar. He's not a cheat he's really straightforward he's honest um it's just that the truth sucks right like it's that the industry is incredibly brutal it's unforgiving it doesn't have a lot of space for creativity and for experimentation it's a yeah. machine and it was it was especially a machine in this era and tom hanks was obsessed with this because like he grew up you know clung to his radio and listening to songs just like everybody else in an era when there were like you know radio was far more dominant and you know there were less tv stations so being on you know uh the the steve allen show or whatever is like it was like a massive a massive fucking deal because like everybody was watching it there were were five channels um and, and and tom hanks because of that there's kind of like a factory line for producing acts right and like tom hanks was like people want new, people want fresh. And as soon as you're not new and fresh, like we have to move on. Uh, Or if, if, as soon as you stop being functioning cogs, I have to pull the piece out, right? Like, it sounded like he's going to shoot him. Um, I I have to pull uh, you as a piece out of the, the the machinery. Um, And, and uh, him adding the sunglasses, which is like not guys. He's like, it's just like a, a subtle marketing thing that speaks to his, his, um, his experience in the industry like i just need to find qu- a quick marketing move and then the moment where guy realizes that that the, the shades branding took off is just like startling for us and for i, I love yeah i love the way you kind of see the reaction to it in these
1: little bits and pieces where you see him wearing shades and wearing shades and make sure you have your shades and stuff like that and then all of a sudden everyone's like flipping out over shades and he's like oh shit
0: I guess it worked. Yeah, yeah. And, like, Tom Hanks doesn't seem particularly surprised. He's just like, put your, put your shades on. <laughs> this yeah. This is... this is. The Where's place. your shades? Like, he never lies to them. Like, you can't really call him a villain. You can't really call Jimmy a villain um, in this because Jimmy is trying to break the machine and Tom Hanks is trying to uh, assure them, like, this was always the machine. You were on our contract. You are now no longer a band, which means I have kind of nothing for you i talked to you because you were a functioning band with a good song um and like yeah I, I like all of you there's nothing wrong with that yeah yeah you seem like a good dude but um i got i gotta move on to my next act because my job is producing acts like you know it's 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 it's, it's sort of a don't play that don't hate the player hate the game kind of thing but like it's 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 in the that manner where he's just like what do you want me to do like Am I supposed to am I supposed to replace the lead singer that everybody loves and has now been on TV? Like, no, yeah. we got to move on. And like, you know, I can't keep covering your bills at the hotel either because like you're staying there and guy kind of he gets it like this isn't. Yeah, this isn't like, a villain I just turn. love the this like is guy this, this is the story. It's been the whole time. Yeah, you're you're in breach of contract
1: guy <laughs> and, he, and guys like, well, maybe I'll I'll go talk to them. and he starts laughing. He's like, you're not going to jail. Like, Dale is old as time, you know? Yet, you have a hit single. You're the one-hit wonders. Um, I'm going to use my final thoughts to admit something incredibly embarrassing. So, I saw this movie when it came out, essentially in 96, 97, whenever it was on video. Um, And they talked about the Oneiders, a joke that I love. Uh, And I love how much traction they get out of that joke, which they do. You mentioned when... When Steve Zahn corrects them with a different mispronunciation of their name. Like, it goes on for a long time. It's not until Tom Hanks comes in, which is like 45 minutes in the movies, that he finally says to
0: stop calling it, like, the Wonders. Um, oh, and he also does that really funny thing. Like, the best thing in the movie is Tom Hanks uh, saying, I want to talk to you about your band, The Wonders. And he pauses to be like... I'm the only person so far that has gotten your band's name, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Um, and they go, like, the whole the whole joke, though, because when they do the herdsmen, too, like, the uh, we heard you, and they're trying to figure out, like, a pun like the Beatles. Well, guess what? I didn't get that joke when I was 13. It was probably when I was 30. And I, at this point, I have tons of Beatles albums that I was rewatching this. It's like sometime late twenties, early thirties. I'm rewatching this movie for the first time, and they mention that, and I finally get that the Beale's name is a pun, and why it's a pun. Uh, so yeah, this. Some I think this movie weirdly made me inoculated to not understanding the pun, but then eventually opened up the wound again later on in my life, Peter.
0: I'm like, how is the Beatles name? Is- oh, that's how,
1: that's how I spell Beatles at all.
0: Because they beat all the other competition.
1: I thought the joke was that they just spelled it wrong, not that beat was a music term. And <laughs> again, that's, that's why thing. I don't. Hold on. <laughs> this is why I don't. I don't write music, Peter. I don't get all your terms. Beat. <laughs> Treble. Bass. Uh, scales. Uh, notes. Like a accents, fish? Quarter notes eighth notes? Does it go up to eighth notes? Sixteenth notes? Now I feel like fucking uh, the guy Bigger. in New Girl who's like, yeah, who keeps stretching his hands. No way it's that big. Okay, I'm going to start over. <laughs> Schmidt. It's late. I don't know the name of the guy in New Girl. Um, Well, Peter, it is now, you are 30 in Chicago time. I'm I sure am. About that.
0: I, I, which is my 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 motherland, which means uh, I am I'm a thirty thirty year old.
1: Yeah, the hospital you were probably born in. You're thirty, according to them. If they checked their records right now, they would say you're thirty.
0: They would say I'm flirty and thirty.
1: Oh yeah, the hospital you were I born was, in. I was born the, at uh, the a Swinger Hospital, hospital? Run by Austin Powers. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. No your parents were like they fucked everything that could move until they finally buttoned down and became psychologists I think
0: yeah have you seen um have you seen the movie Blue Velvet uh imagine two Frank Booths one one a man one a woman <laughs> Francine
1: Booth and they finally stopped fucking for pleasure long enough to have you
0: yeah they said I'll fuck anything that moves as long as it let's, keeps me a let's baby. Make,
1: let's make this one a lot of work. <laughs> That's what they said. And <laughs> now that little job they created for themselves uh, is 30 in Chicago time. Well, happy birthday, Thank you. Peter.
0: Thank you. Uh,
1: this is recorded for
0: posterity. I'm talking about my butt again? For
1: posteriority? <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I, uh, yeah, so when you listen to this, you'll be 30 and I will be a year older, which will be sad for me because i'm not turning a fun age i'm just getting into my late 30s officially
0: yeah i'm getting i'm i'm getting a little bit less flirty i actually think what what's the
1: 40 when you turn 40 what is it like horn horny in 40. i make horny work <laughs> <laughs> can i make horny work horny 40 i don't think so Horny 40 H- 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 horton here's a 40 H- 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 Horty here's a 40.
0: Forty.
1: forty. Maybe, maybe you gotta change it so to fornication.
0: Wow. Forty, fornies. Does that work better? Like forty forty. and forty. Change. That's the best you're gonna do.
1: There we go. Yeah,
0: Fornication forty- occasion. <laughs> but if you if if it's fornicating forty, that means you have to have sex that would uh, offend a Southern Baptist preacher.
1: <laughs> do you remember? <laughs> do you remember that there was a show on Showtime? Called Californication, which was both a different way to say, I guess, sex in California, but mm-hmm. also a seven year too late takeoff of the Red Hot Chili Peppers album that made the same fucking stupid joke. And it was basically about how David Duchovny guns out having sex because he, had he a wrote sex a addict. good because he wrote a good book once. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. mean, the movie said it was a good I mean, the TV show said it was a good book. I have no proof. You haven't read it. Well, the book was called God Hates Us All. I don't think... Probably wasn't that good, to be honest.
0: uh, Yeah, I imagine it was of the same quality as the the writing on the show Californication. So,
1: that could yeah, be consistent. another thing. Like, forget small talk. When did you stop watching Californication?
0: <laughs> Two episodes. Well, I made it through the first season. So I'm like, I like David Duchovny. He's good, right? He's like you want more some, David Duchovny. Yeah, some, some Duchovny on the... Uh, Peter, what are we doing next week? Popstar, Never Stop Stopping, because a fan. Doug Lehman joining us. We're so excited to have Doug on.
1: So excited. I know. Noted monster truck aficionado coming to talk about. And I'll tell you what. Uh, she was given quite a lot of options that I know that she loves, which includes... Uh, 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 Bringsby Bear, which is the episode I'm editing right now. If you want to know how far, far away from recording and editing it is, and uh, and then uh, Inside Out, which I also know she loves, and she picked Popstar. So, can I tell you, this is the last 30 seconds. I swear we're gonna end on this. I I wanted to be a filmmaker, I didn't, didn't want to be a musician, I wanted to be a filmmaker. Inside the actor studio is one of the main reasons why I realized I probably wasn't ever gonna be a filmmaker. I needed to think of a different thing, and here's why. Because I used to watch that all the time, right? Because, of course, it's actors and directors I love talking about their craft and movies that I loved and stuff like that. I started to realize that this is, like, a hugely prestigious school that been, you know, with, with these classes that were all new classes, new faces, every episode, all these people that were studying to be directing and acting. And at this point, some of the episode's 10, 15 years old from when I watched them. I didn't know any of these fucking people. <laughs> Right? Yeah. yeah. And I'm watching the audience member going like, four year directing. I'm like, oh, well, that guy's not a director. So none of these people are anything that they want to be. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make to swing this in Fargo, North Dakota, where I'm going to college. Maybe I should look at a different job. <laughs> I mean, there's always being a monster truck. So the reason I'm not a famous director is specifically James Lipton's fault. That's what I'm saying. Maybe I could have been great, but he really discouraged me by uh, not teaching people well enough to
0: become famous directors and actors and screenwriters. Um, do you consider yourself a bit of a uh, like a missed opportunity, like something that could have? oh uh, no. I
1: feel like I'm doing okay, and I probably would not have wanted to live in that world where I like. I didn't know where my next paycheck was coming from. Uh, yeah, that sounds miserable. <laughs> yeah uh, so I'm fine doing this with you as a way to compensate. Good night, good